Okay, assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. It's so wonderful to be back with everyone. It's been a couple of weeks. I, um, for me, it's been, um, it feels like a, a really long time and I've missed um, being together in this space. And I know as we're sort of counting down, you know, we're on our 87th surah, um, counting our way down towards the 114. Um, I often think about how precious each of these meetings are because, you know, this is not going to go on forever. And so every time we get together and have a session like this, I'm just so grateful and happy that we're here together. Um, of course, I have to call out the amazing, um, actually, well, we've had now two amazing khutbahs. The one was called The Seeds of Sacred Beauty um, two weeks ago, two Fridays ago, which was absolutely incredible. And then the one from this past Friday, which is called Alcohol, Gambling, Self-Loathing, um, and the demonic instrumentalities of hate. So it's hopefully a very uh, interesting title. Um, and it's um, Sheikh shares with us a warning that's in Surah Al-Ma'idah um, about how we have to avoid these types of things because they, um, you know, basically uh, ar arise from um, and contribute to a lot of selfishness um, and lead to really the, the destruction of human beings, you know. Um, and this can then, you know, impact society. So we see so many indications or, you know, situations of people that have lost their lives, have committed suicide, have become completely obsessed and addicted to, you know, everything that pulls you away from the divine. And how that just plays, you know, it's something that's very clear in the Quran that God tells us about, but how we do a very good job of sort of diluting that message and justifying the things that we do. And then we, he goes through a lot of, you know, a laundry list of things that are happening in our world um, that are just so devastating. It's such a hard time. Um, and it's interesting when you look at, like, the impact of what we would call political Hinduism, political Christianity, political Judaism, um, and how people who are extremists now have the protection of freedom of speech and so forth and so on. So we look at our, you know, our world. We know that our election is coming up here in America this coming Tuesday. And all indicators are that the Republicans are going to take over again. And the Republicans have been very clear about their agenda um, in terms of everything from like um, cutting social programs like Social Security, Medicare, things that people actually need. Um, and, you know, basically gaming our system to prevent um, spending money on things that people actually need and then protecting the wealthy, protecting those who are in power and continuing the destruction of our climate and so forth and so on. So that is a very dark thing, but that is political Christianity and that is something that is held sacred here. Then we have examples of, um, you know, what's happening in India where the Hindu nationalists are using the Israeli playbook and the Saudi playbook to destroy mosques that have been there hundreds, you know, six to eight hundred years, and yet that is protected, and certainly Hindus are spending a lot of money here to increase um, Hindu nationalist support in within our borders. And then, of course, if you look at what's happening in Israel, they just elected the most right-wing extremist um, people into the governing positions, and of course, um, you know, they are very careful about trying to protect anti-Semitism and you know, conflate a lot of that extremism with anti-Semitism when we can't even establish, you know, a definition, working definition of Islamophobia as a matter of protection for ourselves. So it's a dark time, um, but it's a really important khutbah, as they all are. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I just wanted to share a few thoughts because, you know, quite frankly, I'm like really tired of being on the losing team, right? I mean, we're like, a lot of times you look at all of these things and you hear, 
what's happening in the Muslim world and how, unfortunately, Muslims are in such a, um, you know, position of either being devastated and decimated around the world or, you know, in a, a situation where they don't even know that standing up for something like political Islam, when it means standing up for justice and standing up for your rights, is actually something good. But we, you know, sit there and argue about how we shouldn't talk about political Islam or when we, you know, um, have so much energy poured into conversations about uh, Andrew Tate, who just converted to Islam. And, you know, it's like if we were a winning team, a winning religion, it would we would attract winners. Right. And so it's like people don't even take you know notice of someone like Andrew Tate. If you follow this, which I really haven't followed that much, but I, what I know from him, he was so offen offensive to the Western world that he literally got banned from all of the social media platforms and then found himself, you know, welcomed by Muslims by claiming he became Muslim. You know, someone like that, if we are really vibrant and committed to a beautiful faith, if someone like Andrew Tate truly, you know, committed to Islam and, and actually converted, I would expect that he would go silent and spend all of his time in, you know, repentance and apology for everything that he's done up until now, because he has a very public record of misogyny and hatred and all of these things. And if he truly were, you know, a, a Muslim in the way we understand it, he would be out there and apologetic and <laughs> repentant to the point where he would be terrified of what would come, you know, to him on the final day. But that's not the case. It's actually quite the opposite. So it just, again, like underscores, you know, I'm tired of being on the losing team. And I spend a lot of my days kind of thinking about, okay, what can we do? Because we here spend so much time learning the Quran, loving the Quran, getting excited about what we hear here and, and feeling frustrated that it's like the beauty and the sophistication of what we learn here in this small space with a very small group of followers has the potential to turn everything around. But it's such a challenge to convince others of that. And, you know, I look at examples of things in my day or in my life and, in, in, you know, in the week that make me reflect on this point. And it's like, what can we do as individuals? Because we obviously are a minority in a world where everyone on the other side has power, money, influence. And our own team is just, they're, they're just not anywhere where they need to be. And so, you know, I wanted to just share, I guess, a couple of just interesting I mean, point, interesting to me, maybe they're not interesting to anyone else, but just sort of points of reflection. So I know, um, you know, we, we um, this weekend, alhamdulillah, had the opportunity to go to a chamber orchestra uh, concert where we were just engulfed in beauty. And, you know, hearing, like, we literally were sitting two rows back and watching a woman play this harp and a man playing this violin. And it was the most glorious thing. And I didn't realize how it would impact me. The minute they started playing, about a minute in, I started tearing. I didn't know where it was coming from. But it's like you realize when you are holding so much like upset about how dark the world has become, and then all of a sudden you are just engulfed in beauty and the music, and it just overtakes you. It's like it just was this release of tears. And it was shocking to me, but at the same time, amazing to me because I thought okay here are these human beings that have the capacity to produce incredible godly beauty and then we live in this microcosm but in uh, surrounded in this world of just darkness where people are at war and that they're fighting for territory and they're killing people and you know it's the bloodiest time uh, bloodiest year for Palestinians and you just read every single day about just the evil that is taking place around us so how do we how do we you know um, really 
find our anchor in that. And, you know, we know that a lot of Muslims are struggling with their faith. And so we get a lot of these messages from people that are like, you know, I want to be Muslim, but I don't know whether I should be Muslim. I don't know whether I believe in Islam anymore. I don't believe in God anymore. I don't know. Um, and, you know, even like I reflect on the times when I was a convert early on, and I remember having to live what I think a lot of converts have to live and, and work through, a double life because you have a persona as a Muslim and you have a persona when you interact with non-Muslims. And you ha kind of have to flip back and forth and navigate like, okay, how do I you know, be normal with my non-Muslim friends or workers and things like that? And yet then how do I you know, change myself you know, to go back into my Muslim space and be properly Muslim? And I think this was, you know, this continues on for today because I know even like, you know, I'm hearing from people who, you know, like now um, I interact or I, I'm aware of activities with, you know, Muslims at like the college level, you know, so these are like young Muslims that are trying to find their way and navigate. And, you know, it's, this is such a challenge because on the one hand, when they interact with other Muslims, you know, it's like men and women just naturally separate, right? Like you have a Muslim event and you just sort of go into this space where it's like, okay, it's natural for men to be on one side of the room and women to be on the other. But in any other non-Muslim space, that wouldn't be the case. Like if I walked into that, if I, if I was with my non-Muslim friends, I would hug them, I would interact with them, I wouldn't think twice about it. But all of a sudden it becomes an issue in a Muslim space where it's not even necessarily that you believe that men and women have to be separated or you can't hug or whatever, but you're just worried that the other person might be offended if you do that. So you live in this really strange space. And I, the way that I think about it, again, it's like, okay, that's the losing team, right? You go and you, when you're interacting with the winning team, you don't even think about that kind of stuff. You are just you. But then as soon as you enter the space of the losing team, now you have all kinds of these strange things that you have to be aware of and think of. And you know, and maybe that's the key is we have to start thinking of when you, how do you bring those two people together? How do you make that double life into a single life? How do you think about like when you interact with your friends on the winning team, the Christian team, the Jewish team, the atheist team. How do you feel and how do you act? And what do you censor about yourself when you go into the Muslim space? And why don't you stop doing that? And when you see your friends doing that, why don't you actually make it a conversation? Why do we do this? You know, aren't we tired of being on the losing team? Aren't we tired of having these weird, like, psychoses about interacting with me members of the opposite sex? And especially as young people, I think young people have lots of space to discuss these issues and challenge them. Um, and let me just share with you, um, you know, I think I mentioned in, in my weekly email, we're working hard on uh, Prophet's Pulpit 2, which is fabulous because when we are re-engaging this text, we are again rediscovering these khutbahs that were given and, you know, when you see them like come out, you know, come to life in text form, it's a completely different experience and it's amazing. So I came across this, uh, this let me read this excerpt that in, in one of the khutbahs that is just really powerful. Um, that relates to what I'm saying. So we got into this situation neither by accident nor overnight. We got into this situation after generations of Muslims who could have made a difference, chose instead to observe and experience injustice and in fact tolerate it. They chose safety over truth. Every Muslim born or convert must deal with the sins of our forefathers who tolerated the shackles of oppression and did not rebel. We are all forced to wrestle with the same historical questions. How could it be that this religion, religion that came to liberate human beings from oppression is now marred in the ugliness with which it is marred today? To the very extent of the sins of our forefathers is our obligation to correct the path. 
This is why the generation that must correct the course of Islamic history bears a responsibility that is far greater than any previous generation. We cannot correct the past or bring the Islamic message back to its pristine clarity and luminosity without major corrective action. Major corrective action requires enormous investment. It requires great sacrifice by the best kind of people. The best of Muslims must be willing to sacrifice their entire lives to correct the course intellectually and educationally and break the yokes of bondage. We are not going to do this by working as medical doctors during the week and focusing on Islam on the weekends. We are not going to do this by teaching Islam in our free time. This is the past. It is only possible if a sufficient number of the brightest Muslim minds are willing to sacrifice their entire lives to educate fellow Muslims, correct the path of history, challenge the burdens of despotism, and point the finger at what is wrong by saying, this is wrong and we cannot tolerate it. That was just exactly what we need to do. We gotta take this thing seriously now. When we went to the uh, chamber music concert, they opened by saying this is their 75th year anniversary. And the reason that we were there is because a sophomore at Ohio State University decided 75 years ago that he believed chamber music should be in Columbus, Ohio. So he made that his cause. One person, one person made the difference. He brought it and now 75 years later, we all get to enjoy this beautiful concert because one person believed. And then I start thinking about what we do here with like the prophet's pulpit. We've been doing an amazing job um, with people. Thank you for sharing names and stuff, but we have, you know, Marwa is doing an incredible job filling um, these requests for the prophet's pulpit from all points around the world. And we were just saying last night, you know, this could be the seed that 75 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, could be the starting point of something really different, right? And we, we have to believe in that. And, you know, I got a message today from a friend who loved the prophet's pulpit so much that she wanted to teach it. She was invited to teach the Sunday school class at her mosque. So she asked for permission. permission. She said, I'd like to teach the prophet's pulpit for these kids. And they told her, no, you can't. You don't have permission. And I don't know why. She wouldn't tell me the reasons, but I asked her the reasons, so I'm going to try and find out. And it just made me so sad because it's like, you know, if you can't take the content like Prophet's Pulpit and teach it to the next generation of children, what are you building for the future? And then let me just lastly close with this because I also like to look around and see, you know, who's doing a good job? Who's on the winning team? And there is this Instagram um, page that I follow, and it's called The Moral Revolution. I know some of the people here know it. It's run by Christians, people who really believe in trying to teach the next generation about dating and sex and how to have a dignified existence with their bodies and, you know, dealing with all the issues that our kids deal with. But they do it in a very, like, open and kind and beautiful and educational kind of way. And they're very clear about, you know, we believe in reclaiming, you know, Jesus's message about love and about respect and dignity. And, you know, and it's, it's heartbreaking for me because sometimes I read things that they put out and I'm like, this is so beautiful and Islamic. And there's no way this would show up on our team because our team, we're just a bunch of losers right now. So let me just share this with you because one of the things that I learned as a brand marketer, as a strategy is search and reapply. Search for the best things that are out there, take it, fix it, reapply it own it right make it better and that's a strategy that we can use so let me just share this very you know powerful thing okay so this is a post 
Sexual Sin opens the door so much more than just a hot date. That's the title, okay? And then in the comments. Sexual sin is the enemy's playground. Becoming sexually intimate with someone creates soul ties. Soul ties are meant for marriage. When we become sexually intimate with someone before being protected by a marriage covenant, then we are opening the door for the enemy to play with our minds, our feelings, our expectations, our perceptions, and our emotions. Sexual sin is not your friend. Have you ever wondered why after being sexually intimate with your boyfriend or girlfriend, there seems to be an argument the next day? or why you feel unloved because after being intimate, you want him to commit to you like you're his wife, but you're not. Sexual connection is good, but only in its proper place. Otherwise, the enemy can use it to actually bring tension and division into your relationship. Purity is not just a rule God wants us to follow to withhold something good from us. It's a protection not only for your heart, but for your relationship. That's Islamic. Why don't we say stuff like that? Why don't we do stuff like that? Why don't we start, we, we found it. Why don't we like make it better and reapply it and own it so we can actually stop being a bunch of losers. So that's what I want to share. So thank you. I'm just, I don't know if you're as frustrated or as tired as I am, but you know, all it takes is one person to make a difference. So whatever your superpower is, and I believe it's not just converts, everyone has a superpower, every Muslim has a superpower. Embrace it, take it, make it your own, and make you know serve God with it, and make Islam better. Let's 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 become the winning party. We all we've all been winning par on winning parties, not related to Islam. So let's bring that to Islam. So that's all I wanted to share. Thank you. I'm so looking forward to another session, Surah Tauba, day six. Thank you for being with us. الرسول الأمين الموسر رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين I'm told we stopped at um, 67 um It is Surah At-Tawbah thus far, it's not um, an exaggeration to say that Surah At-Tawbah coming at, which we, we've talked about, coming after a major victory is followed by a major challenge. The, the major victory is conquering, defeating 
the Meccans who had from the genesis of is of the Islamic message uh, with the Prophet Muhammad um, the temptation as we said is uh, is is quite powerful for one to say okay well the nemesis has been defeated and it is time now for us to relax but it is extremely significant that at, at this juncture the the Quran's intervention is to come in and to put it quite simply say how serious are you and what is the level of commitment I mean Grace was was quoting from khutbah which I was saying the um, the best must be willing to sacrifice entire lives. There is no cause that can be served. That's just Allah's sunnah in creation. The, there is no cause that can be served without sacrifices. And in direct proportion to the willingness of people, and it is quite material that in Surah At-Tawbah, it is not the it is not a bombastic uh, sensationalism of saying, well, you know, you have to be willing to sacrifice your lives in the sense of willing to die, and that's it. Sometimes, well, actually, let me take that back. It's not actually sometimes, but most times, what is much harder than the willingness to die for a cause is the willingness to live for, for a cause. And as we saw, Surah Tawbah, there is, is a core emphasis on the very basic obvious idea, but an idea that is so easily uh, swept under and ignored of preparedness, that if you were truly serious about sacrificing for the cause, you would, you would internally, within, seriously commit to vanquishing your own excuses, vanquishing the propensity to engage in all types of delusions that would say, well, the cause can be served by others. It doesn't need to be served by me. Um, or, well, yeah, there is a cause, but there are other priorities in life. I mean, I think for when Surat, when you, when, if Surat Tawbah is understood and truly followed and implemented, no civilization, what, no Islamic civilization that understands and comprehends 
and implement Surah At-Tawbah would fall apart or be defeated. In many ways, I mean, Surah At-Tawbah, its relevance to our historical moment, relevance to us today, is simply astounding. From everything, when it when it talks about comprehending the idea of sacred space and sacred time, and not giving yourself the license to manipulate divinity within your life in order to accommodate your temporal causes. This is the whole discussion about the the holy month and and Nasih and so on. And at the same time, the, 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 the whole discussion about preparedness and the various excuses and the in victory with ease when things are looking upward and good, the, the biggest challenge that a believer confronts is the possibility of hypocrisy sort of sneaking in. Whenever I, whenever there is a discourse on hypocrisy, immediately, the very nature of that discourse is a discourse on introspection. So it is, put, put it differently, it is extremely significant that right after the defeat of Mecca, it is as if Allah comes and says, well, yes, you, you, you managed to achieve this great military um, feat. Now, but the real challenge is introspection. Have you looked within? And if you are sufficiently familiar with Islamic literature, this is very different than how most commentators have approached Surah Tawbah. Most commentators approach Surah Tawbah as a surah that basically declares war. And, and Ayat is safe and, you know, the whole traditional discussion about whether Ayat al-Saif abrogates everything before it. But a close reading of Surah At-Tawbah, it is actually a surah about introspection. Have you looked within? Do you truly understand the challenges that victory brings, the challenges that luxury brings, the challenges that comfort brings, the challenges, you notice that most of what it talks about up to this point is not the type of challenges that would confront those who have little to use, lose, but the challenges that confront those who have the most to lose. Okay. And as we saw towards the end of last halakha, the, the, when even part of the introspective approach 
is to say, do you think, are you careful about what comes out of your mouth? Are you careful about your conduct? Here, a reference to those who say, we were just having fun and joking around. Living a deliberate life, living a life of deliberation and intention means that you take the consequences of what you say and do seriously. And if what you are doing, even if you think you are having fun, even if you think you're just fooling around, as as the the um, um, this is Kunna Nakhud is sixty five. Even if you think that you are just fooling around, if the result is a dilution or obscuring the value of commitment then that's no that's no excuse your the idea that oh we're just fooling around we're just joking around is is it sort of toba comes in and says allah just takes on example after example of various excuses that human beings put up to um dilute the importance of their commitment and knocks these excuses down one after the other. Okay. And remember the point that I think we was at the very end where um, um, did I make that point or did I imagine I did? Um, the point that w- where the, the hypocrites are or those who have various levels of hypocrisy in their heart are promised that they will suffer harsh consequences. And the, and the while a lot of my opinion is that it was predicting what will happen after the death of the prophet. We we covered this point, right? Okay, yeah. Um, because it's a, it's a, it's not a. I think it is a, a, a very important point, but it is not a point that you would find in the interpretive traditions or the tafsir and so on. Okay, and then this shocking confrontation you know your excuses when are, are unacceptable god is not accepting these these excuses in fact for some of you the net result is in fact you've slipped into kufr you you've drifted so far from iman and it is significant that 
in Surah At-Tawbah, normally our minds is that if Allah is telling someone, you have now become kuffar, and, and I touched upon this at the, towards the end, after your iman, that we would think, oh, okay, what it's talking about is apostasy and an institutional, structural response to apostasy. In other words, the law steps in and says, okay, well, you are no longer believers, and because you're no longer believers, here are the legal consequences. But it is extremely informative and educational that although Allah talks about kufr after iman, Allah does not follow this with a structural, legalistic response to this kufr. It doesn't say, well, now that you are kuffar, you have lost the right to live in our midst. Or now that you are kuffar, uh, your marriages have dissolved. Or now that you are kuffar, your children can't inherit your problem from you. Because if, if we are, if, if the Quran was, if the, if the people receiving the Quran had the type of epistemological framework, fancy language for, had the psychological understanding of the modern mind, that's where they would go. They would say, oh, Allah is talking about kufr after me. Okay, so does this mean their marriages as dissolved? And the type of questions you would get today would be like that. Okay, well, does, well so now if this person is a kafir, so does this mean the marriage is dissolved? So how could be they be remain married to the people they're married to if the wife is a believer and the husband is a kafir? Or what happens to inheritance laws? Or you know what? Okay, so you know what happens to do they still have the right to come to Jummah uh, and pray with us? Or you know does this mean they're still citizens? But see, this is the remarkable thing: is Allah is not talking structurally or institutionally. Allah is not talking about the legal response. Allah is talking to your conscience. Although the law will still consider you Muslims, and because there was no, no, no evidence of anyone, of any marriage being dissolved, or any consequences or inheritance laws, or and and we'll see one other example of this that's actually quite significant. But yet, it is extremely profound and devastating if you are confronting people and telling them, "Do you realize that you've drifted far so far from iman?" that you are, in God's eyes, regardless of how the law sees you, akin to Kafirs rather than believers. If you had mature constitutional thinkers, this would have profound ramifications 
for understanding the nature of the state and the province of law in an Islamic state. That it is not the role of the law. It is quite significant that even when high national interest issues are concerned, Allah is still talking to your conscience and not not igniting a witch hunt by the legal system to go after people to create inquisitions of faith. And one of the things that I found quite remarkable is that, okay, so you have the Quran saying, you have become kafirs after you're, you're, after you're believers. So I looked, okay, were there then anyone that beat anyone? You know, okay, did people say, okay, who are the kafirs among us? Let's go after them because that's what you would expect in a medieval context. In a medieval context, you would expect inquisitions. You would expect investigations. You would expect trials for faith. That is the classic medieval framework. If you accuse people of treason, the legal system responds by saying, okay, we have to create court-martials to investigate and dig out treason. But you search and search as much as you want, and you will not find a single example in which the Prophet ﷺ permitted inquisitorial investigation on who is a munafiq and a kafir and who is not. Does that have serious ramifications for how we understand the modern state and or how we understand the role of law? Absolutely. Because it is clearly God is speaking to people's conscience and clearly God is outing those who are munafiqun to themselves, saying, I'm exposing you before yourself. But when there were some of the Prophet's disciples who responded to these verses by saying, and and you'll see where we're going to go with this, because I think your mind will be blown. Who responded to this by saying, let's go get them. The Prophet held them back. I said, no, we're not going to do any such thing. We're not going to go out and get anyone. We're not going to expel them. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to create a culture of persecution. We're not going to create a culture of persecution. Okay. But now, look. So after saying, don't make apologies. Don't make excuses. You know, you know that you, ha- you your faith has weakened to the point that it hardly exists anymore. Now, some of you might have more faith than others, but th- this is, I'm, I'm still at 
69. Look at what follows in 67. المنافقون والمنافقات بعضهم من بعض يأمرون بالمنكر وينهون عن المعروف ويقبضون أيديهم نسوا الله فنسيهم إن المنافقين هم الفاسقون Okay So When Allah comes and tells you because the natural reaction of the vast majority, as we said, that um, um, that the example of someone like a Jalas who repented to the point of saying, "Allah, you know, give me shahada. I want to die in battle," and Allah granted him that his. And the story of Jannas bin Suwaid, I mean, it is a story of an of of a very lively conscience. He doesn't go to the Prophet and say, you know, I am among those hypocrites, aren't I? And the Prophet would say, yes, you are. No, that's not what happens. Jannas is in goes through. A, a dynamic of asking himself about his true beliefs and his true willingness to commit and comes to the conclusion that he is among the munafiqun and he only goes to the Prophet in saying please ask Allah to grant me my dua that I die as a martyr it is, it is it's fascinating to me that when you see an example of Jalas, then you, you know that, and you don't you don't have examples of people coming to the Prophet saying, you know, am I among them? Although you would, that's what you would expect would happen, but in fact, the Prophet, والسلام, underscores this whole element of look within. Look within, ask yourself the questions. Don't ask me. And no one else is to judge someone else. It is all about how you judge yourself. So then what Allah comes and says in 67, it's like saying, you want to understand the earmark of of nifaq well those who are who have slipped in a state of nifaq effectively have forgotten god and then but you say but some of them many of them actually yes they would come to prayer Yes, they're you know they they're lazy. They would drag their feet to prayer. Yes, they would make excuses to miss many jumas, but you know they still the evidence is that that's you know they still many of them still prayed. Still, you know they they hated giving alms, but they would still so. They're forgetting God. Is not a literal thing where they actually forgot God. 
So how is it that they forgot God? Well, when you look at how they interacted with others, and, and the key, because we are accustomed, we, we, the language of um, has perhaps lost its meaning for us because we, we have uh, cheapened uh, the, the impact of this language to command what is not good. You know, we, we, because we, we've cheapened the opposite, to command the good. We, so it's lost its meaning. But look at this. وَيَقْبِضُونَ أَيْدِيهِمْ Or أَيْدِيَهُمْ يَقْبِضُونَ أَيْدِيَهُمْ What is يَقْبِضُونَ أَيْدِيَهُمْ Muhammad Asad probably Okay, 67 He translates Withhold their hands from doing good قَبْضِ الْيَدِ يَقْبِضُونَ أَيْدِيَهُمْ Means When you, your attitude, you, what, 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 um, the earmark of your activity, or what would properly describe the nature of your actions, is to limit l- limit or to constrain or to warn against or to limit or to philosophize the limiting of of doing good rather than the opposite so the the, the instead of having a liberal attitude towards goodness the the type of person that comes and says well but you know do you really trust that the money you're giving is being used properly do you really trust that the person that you're feeding is really hungry oh i heard that this person you know is just lazy and doesn't like working it is it is again the issue is not whether they are right or not right about their assessments the issue is their moral attitude so now step back how have they forgotten god because what motivates their activity or lack of activity is not the reward with Allah, not the idea that Allah will reward me for my good intentions, even if a person who's truly deals with Allah says, well, you know, I'll give. Now, if you misuse the funds, that's on you. That's not on me. But because I, my, what I care about is my relationship with Allah, I'll give. My attitude is one of generosity, of openness, not the opposite. The person who has forgotten Allah always seeks to control the results. Is, 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 uh, is a compulsive controller. 
No, I will not give unless I know what the consequences are going to be. And so their attitude, as with, when, when Allah confronts them, was, okay, you've forgotten God, is that they are the bunch of, what in our language today would say, the bunch of skeptics in society. The bunch of second-guessers. Oh, well, do you, you know, this... And remember that the, this critical issue of you are going to take on the Byzantium Empire. Of course, you people who want to raise a million rational objections can do so. Because it does sound rather crazy. For, for Arabs who have been subservient to the Byzantines for centuries, have never dared defy the Byzantines for such a long time, have repeatedly failed in, 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 in asserting any level of autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the Byzantines. Now, right after the defeat of Mecca, they will actually put up a fight to refuse or reject the dominance of the Byzantines over them, uh, of course you can raise a million rational objections. And Allah looks at these people and says, look at your own dynamics. Look at what you talk about. Look at what you confer with one another about. Look at your counsel. Your deliberations, your intercourses as human beings with one another is not about goodness. It is always about darkness. You are always talking, you're complaining. You are always that party that always sees itself as aggrieved, as wiser than everyone else, as more, you know, uh, uh, you, you're always talking about the grounds for dissent and abstention, but what really motivates you, if you are truly honest with yourself, is purely your self-interest. What really motivates you is that you have your own little pot, you, you know, your own little share of the world, and you don't want anything to happen to endanger that little share of the world. You have your own little stability, your own little uh, um, routine, your own little protocol, your own little whatever, that you have grown accustomed to enjoying and benefiting from, and Everything you are talking about is to maintain that little, uh, you know, um, share of the of of your world, and it's not about God, and it's not about God's cause, and it's not about this message, and it's not about a cause. It's about you and your deliberations, basically, with the with similar people like you are all of that same nature. Okay. Now, of course, 
Allah tells him that, you know, the consequences of this in the hereafter is disastrous. This is 68. And so on. That, you know, Allah is going to punish them in the hereafter. But Allah then also tells them about the consequences of nifaq, of this, this, of qabd al-yad, be obstructing goodness, obstructing giving, obstructing aid to others rather than the opposite. By Allah reminding them of a prototype that the Quran uses. Notice that every time the Quran wants to tell us about that people can create human civilizations that appear to human beings stable and powerful and unchangeable and unalterable, but that Allah, as much as Allah gives leeway to people to, you know, chance after chance after chance to build these civilizations, the consequences of your own follies bring these civilizations to crash eventually in due time. Allah always uses prototype examples. قوم نوح قوم عاد قوم ثمود قوم إبراهيم You might wonder why does Allah keep using the same prototypical examples when Allah wants to tell you remember you can build civilizations that seem very stable and very powerful but these civilizations, when anchored on folly, they will crash. And because when you use these prototypical examples, the point is not the micro history. So it, the point is not for us to know the details of what happened with Qawm Ad and Qawm Nuh and in most of the times, there's only one exception to, in the entire Quran to this, which we've covered earlier, I've talked about. But it is, it is the, the invoking like a metaphor for the idea. And the idea of those who build civilizations and the, the, how these civilizations crash when as look and when they are anchored on dhulm so when you look at 69 so first Allah tells them فَاسْتَمْتَعُوا بِخَلَاقِهِمْ فَاسْتَمْتَعُوا بِخَلَاقِهِمْ فَاسْتَمْتَعْتُمْ بِخَلَاقِكُمْ 
كما استمتع الذين من قبلكم بخلاقهم that just like you they thought it was all about their best interests just like you they lost themselves in their daily indulgences just like you they thought it was all about their little share of the pot and investing in their little share and 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 seeing their little share grow in other words just like you they engaged in the delusion of existence this is in 69 but then in 70 فما كان الله ليظلمهم ولكن كانوا انفسهم يظلمون the the, the ultimate takeaway though is that when they defeated themselves like you defeat yourselves with your nifaq Allah didn't treat them unjustly they it's their own injustice that defeated them it is not Allah that was unjust to them it's the same thing like you know the problem of theodicy or often in theodicy what is being contemplated often not always of course it's not exclusively so but the the issue of evil right and Allah repeatedly there's a part to what we see as evil that is the simply in order for light to exist there has to be darkness I mean this is sort of the 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 eternal philosophical question of the very nature of goodness can can the good exist without its contrast but that so much of the evil produced is the evil that you create effectively through the weakness of human hypocrisy that human beings raise ideals and uphold principles like justice but they're not serious about the principles and the ideals that they raise and when ultimately and that Allah constantly intervenes to save human beings from their follies but ultimately when your own follies catch up with you always the question as human beings suffer whenever human beings suffer is God why is this happening to me but here is the very harsh lesson the very harsh lesson well it's happening to you because there is a cumulative generational pattern of wrongdoing that finally has caught up with you that it is you know it's like um, the sad reality is Allah can give you a very balanced a space right that the balance of space preserves life in the space 
with the cosmological beauty that Allah creates. But if first generation comes and pollutes that space, second generation comes and pollutes that space, third, fourth, until you come to the tenth, and then the eleventh generation in the space, the, the pollution has reached the point where everything has become toxic and nothing has now can be irrigated or grown or there's no food, there's no life, there's only disease and folly. And then you tell Allah, God, why am I suffering? Well, have you looked at the 10 generations before you that have been polluting this space? If you want to ask God, ask God about the space before the 10 generations. How that space was before the 10 generations. And what God, what, what advice and lessons, what were God's instructions to the first generation that occupied that space? But 10 generations and each generation just indulges. And yes, the, if the 11th generation, and that's why you need a hereafter, so that to the extent that these generations have committed injustices against the 11th generation, that there will be recourse and there will be justice in the hereafter. But you know, the easy way out and the, 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 the logical fallacy that is consistently, you see human beings commit, is that members of the 11th generations immediately look to God and say, God, why have you put us in such a disgusting space? Okay, so it is not Allah, it is their own injustice that constantly defeats human beings and causes this ultimate caving in and destruction. And then Allah contrasts the state of nifaq to the state of belief. And it is extremely, this is 71, it is extremely significant. المؤمنون والمؤمنات بعضهم أولياء بعض يأمرون بالمعروف وينهون عن المنكر ويقيمون الصلاة ويؤتون الزكاة ويطعين الله ورسوله أولئك سيرحمهم الله So the contrast look, أولياء بعض First there is what is what is ولاء ولاء is a bond a bond of caring. You have no wala if you have no a common virtue of caring about one another. So the first thing that Allah tells you is that you want to understand believers. Believers care about one another. Ba'dum awliya ba'd. The, the very idea that munafiqun care, but they only care about, about their likes. So it's not that they care about the entire ummah. They care only about those who have property. They care about only those who are members of a privileged trade group. Uh, some of them are members of certain clans that, you know, they, they so they, they're, ethic of care 
is by its very nature limited to a party. That is why, I mean, again, I, I always think sort of the Tawbah, it's as if if it if only Muslims understood it for their moment. The idea that, for instance, as believers, oh, we, we could be good Muslims, but we don't have to worry ourselves about what happens to Muslims in India or Kashmir. Or we don't have to worry about ourselves about what happens to Muslims in China. Or we don't have to, you know, we... We can make peace with Israel and not worry ourselves about what happens to Muslims in Palestine. You have stepped from Iman to Nifaq immediately. It's it's a non-starter. The the minute you started with that premise, you've joined the Nifaq group. Second, if you live as Muslims, but you don't vie with one another to achieve goodness. So if you live concerned about, well, my life is good, I'm not going to worry about your life. I'm enjoying things, I'm not going to worry about if you're enjoying things. I am safe and happy and secure. You're not safe or happy or secure, that's not my problem. If you say, well, you know, as a Muslim, well, my job is to take care of myself and my family, and that's it. You step from Iman to Nifaq. That's why if people understood Surah At-Tawbah, the selfishness, the theology of selfishness that some people in modern Islam are trying very hard to legitimate and make orthodox. You can be a good Muslim in Britain and not worry about, you know, uh, racism. You can be a good Muslim and not worry about the Muslim ban and all the, the those who are suffering because they're refugees and they can't come to you, they can't find a safe haven. It's theology of selfishness. You know, I will go to my grave because I know this is the truth. A theology of selfishness is by definition the theology of nifaq. By definition, in Surah At-Tawbah, Allah pointing saying, you want to understand the munafiqun? The munafiqun were people who wanted to look out for themselves. They differentiated between who's part of the in-group and who's part of the out-group. It doesn't work that way. Those who are not forgetting Allah, those who are not in a state where they've forgotten Allah, so Allah forgot them, are constantly vowing with one another in a constant state of engagement to maximize what is good. They are obsessed with seeing goodness maximized in life. 
That means in, you can't achieve what is good by activism. Before activism, there must be comprehension. What does comprehension come from? Education. So you can't say, well, I am going to be an activist to serve the good. Yeah, but first, you have to understand what is good. It takes a lot of education, for instance, to understand what our earth today needs. Without education, you, you can't. Okay. Listen, an ignorant person will not know that we're de- killing the earth. Why? Because they don't have the scientific knowledge to understand what they're doing to the earth. It takes an educated person to say, oh my God, we are destroying God's creation. That's achieved through education. And you can't start talking about a solution without even something like uh, if you, to realize an ignorant person will not realize the extent, the, the human cost of, of people not having adequate medical recourse when they're ill. A lot of people who don't understand this problem, it's because they're ignorant. They don't have, they're not educated. When you become educated, you say, oh my God, I had no idea that the human cost, the human cost of society, when so many people can get very sick, can get sick and find no recourse to adequate medical care but it takes a great deal of education to fix the mess that earlier generations have created so you know the tendency is for people to read this uh, Allah talking about and say ah okay well Allah's talking about let's be activists Activism is good, but it has to be activism that actually has eyesight, seeing activism. Activism that is based on its true commitment to goodness, through knowledge. And so much evil is perpetuated. Sure, so much evil is perpetuated because of inactivity. But you, you can't imagine how much evil is, is perpetuated because simply because of ignorance. And that is why people who are truly evil invest so much in disinformation. What is disinformation? It's to keep you ignorant. It's to say, I don't want you to know the facts. So, of course, the awliya ba'd, we've talked about that. Ya'muruna bil-ma'ruf and hawna anil-munkar, we've talked about that. Or, you know, you could talk much more about that because... And then, وَيُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةِ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَرَةِ And again, Allah repeatedly 
told us there are things, there are variables that yuqimuna salah to the form of collaboratively, collectively making, establishing within society the ethics of Allah's remembrance. And of course, the Utuna Zakah, every time Allah always reminds you of that whatever conviction you, you claim to have, unless you are willing to part with your material belongings, it's meaningless. Okay. And then, of course, the consequences of that, that Allah has promised the believers until, this is, of course, I'm talking about 72 and 70. Okay. Um, until we get to 74. So let's uh, take the translation of 73 and 74. What time is it? Okay. يا أيها النبي جاهد الكفار والمنافقين واغلظ عليهم وأهم جهنم وبئس المصير Allah speaks to them, O Prophet, strive hard against the deniers of truth. Um, the, these are the kuffar. Ahmad Asad always, Muhammad Asad always translates kuffar as deniers of truth. Uh, and the hypocrites, and be adamant with them. Waghlaz alayhim can be translated be adamant with them. Um, but be uncompromising. Be uncompromising. You know, don't allow. Don't allow the dilution of your own principles in dealing with them, and especially that you are not going to be able to kill them or imprison them or exclude them. In other words, they they are going to be in society. You are going to be interacting with them, so it is even more critical that you make a firm stand as to the principles that dif- that differentiate between you and them um, why this is important because you know some this is among modern interpreters some interpreters read this and say Oh, look, uh, Allah says, وَغْلِزْ عَلَيْهِمْ And they read this as be, be cruel with them. وَغْلِزْ عَلَيْهِمْ doesn't mean be cruel with them. And there's no evidence that the Prophet, and as we'll see, in fact, quite the opposite. That the, that they, that, that the Prophet ﷺ as, a, as the representative of the institution of the state dealt with them cruelly or even harshly. Um, okay. Yeah, 74 is, uh, okay, the hypocrites swear by God that they have said nothing wrong, 
yet most certainly have they uttered a saying which amounts to a denial of truth. Or most certainly they have said the word of kufr or said words that amount to kufr and have thus denied the truth after having professed their self-surrender to God, after having professed faith. For they were aiming at something which was beyond their reach. This is important. They were aiming for something that was beyond their reach. Okay? Okay? Um, and they could find no fault with the faith save that God has enriched them and causes apostle to enrich them out of his bounty. So, Okay. So first, let's take... 75, by the way, is continues the thought. Some of them even promised God that if God gave them that they will, in fact, be generous and they will be charitable and we would be charitable and we would be pious and when Allah gave them they turned away so what is this talking about so there are many narratives because if again, if you look at 74, it seems to be referring to a specific incident or incidents because it says that they swear that they didn't utter words of kuf. But Allah knows that they in fact did utter words of kuf. So... Um, So here's an example where the Quran seems to be talking about a historical incident. And we look at the at the, the many different transmissions or narrations. We find competing narrations about who were the individuals involved and what precisely occurred. So, you know, we have narrations, for instance, that um, someone like Wadi'a bin Thabit, uh, when they were heading to Dabuk and things looked very grim because they uh, hit, they, they, uh, they, 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 they ran out of water in the desert, and uh, they were exhausted, they were underarmed, under-equipped, um, that some people, someone like Wadi'a bin Thabit weakened, that although he had taken part previously in a number of the battles, 
but being confronted with all this pressure that he, he these are the reports that he and his some some of his friends started talking about maybe this whole thing is not true maybe muhammad is not a prophet the nature of human beings when they're tested with hardship but even more compelling are the narratives that tell us that someone like Wadi'a bin Thabit or Amir ibn Qais that they didn't actually talk to other people about their doubts but they talked to themselves about their doubts I find these reports even more compelling that under the hardship they felt they started thinking to themselves well there even were some reports that when things you know look grim and they were thirsty and exhausted and tired and dusty they started feeling like what's the point of praying and that some of them skipped a few prayers you have I mean if you look in 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 um, uh, Al-Baji's uh, uh, commentary on the Quran um, or even Shukani or you know gives you a, a whole range of reports and when you look at the transmission of these reports it's very hard to you know all of them are more or less of the same transmission-wise, authenticity. And what I think, again, the Quran is talking about when the first revelation came and the the ayat that we talked about earlier, when Allah comes and says to them, to to people, you know that you have committed nifaq. That there are several individuals, you know, you have the example of someone like Jalas, but you also have someone like Amr ibn Qais or Wadi'a ibn Thabit or people who confronted themselves about the fact that they either expressed doubt to with others or that the or that the doubt is something that they expressed but they didn't necessarily communicate to others but it had consequences like you know some of them started contemplating abandoning the army some of them did abandon and go back home some of them as we said, you know, skipped prayers and said, I don't feel like praying. But clearly, some of them went, and we have reports, conflicting reports about who precisely went to the Prophet and started swearing to the Prophet that, you know, it's, I... You might have heard that I said X, Y, and Z. I swear to God, I didn't say it. 
you know, the guilty calling themselves out, more or less. And the revelation comes and says, because again, the Prophet when they come to him and they say, you know, I swear, oh, you might have heard this and this, and, and, and I swear, the, the Prophet just accepts whatever they tell him. And remember, we, we talked about the, those who said, oh, he's just uh, an ear because he believes anything that's said to him. But Allah comes and says to them, no, Allah knows that you've said it and you're lying. Again, calling the, these people out to themselves. Because it, 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 it it's one thing if you recognized that you are among the culprit and you took yourself to task. But it's quite another if instead of relenting, you even make it worse by going and swearing falsely. Basically, you're lying to the Prophet, and you know that you're lying. Um, okay, and now, where... Uh, yeah, okay. Now, yeah. Now, come to Hammu Bima Lam Yanalu. They aimed at something, Muhammad Asad says, aimed at something that was beyond their reach. Several commentators looked at this and they said, oh, well, this must be, um, uh, it must be referring to the plot to assassinate the Prophet, in Tabuk. That there were some, there was a clique of people that said, you know what, let's just get rid of Muhammad. And reportedly that they, conspired to try to assassinate him. It doesn't look that like this conspiracy to assassinate was a serious one. We don't even have, you know, some reports say that the Allah told the Prophet about the conspiracy and the, the Prophet just changed his, his schedule and so there was no attempt. Other reports say that no, it was that these people talked about uh, assassinating the prophet, but it never they, they it never went anywhere. They never actually made an effort. Um, um, but there is no evidence that this ayah is actually referring to this purported assassination plot. And as I said before, it is... I, I don't want to say it's doubtful that there was an, uh, there were actually assassination plot. There were probably some... My reading of the sources is that there were probably some... Uh, you know, uh, what we would say, you know, type of complaining and whining oh, we should kill him. But it wasn't really a plot. That's my sense. In Ghazwat Tabuk. But 
there is even less evidence that this is what this ayah is talking about. That hamu bima lam yanalu. They 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 strove for something but didn't achieve it. The language doesn't fit, and I think that hamu bima lam yanalu in in the context of the ayah. It's because right after this, it starts talking about what caused their moral failures. What is it that, and so, in other words, it's not talking about people that uh, were necessarily uh, criminally, uh, you, you know, it, it takes a cr criminals to start talking about killing someone. And doesn't seem that this was what this ayah is talking about. But rather, that it is talking about a a problem with these people's iman. And I think that the meaning is more, far more straightforward and far more obvious that they started out wanting to be believers. They started out telling themselves, we, we are going to be good Muslims. But they failed. And Allah tells us right after this why they failed. So why did they fail? Why is it that they strove to be believers and they didn't succeed to be believers? This is the, the, see, if you pause and just reflect carefully on the Quran, learn so much. Their problem, and Allah tells them, your problem is not because they were denied, it's actually because they were blessed with possessions. The, these are people when they had nothing to lose they were committed and they were willing to sacrifice but when they actually achieved some success in this dunya they attained some wealth and the irony is for a number of these people, indeed like Wadi'a bin Thabit, that's the irony of it, and also like Amr bin Qais, they were people of very modest means, and the only time they had possessions that would make, that would make them high middle class, if you will. They were never uh, uh, the, you know, the aristocracy or anything like that, but high middle class is because of the fact that Mecca was became was defeated and because of major victories like the victory over Khaybar and the victory over the the uh, after the battle of the trench and that they went from people without means to people with some means and that was the test that proved to be their undoing. 
they aspired for faith, but when it came down to it, they gave priority to material, and they forgot that whatever blessings they have, it came from Allah. Remember what, you know, what in the Meccan, repeatedly, Allah warns us about in, in, the, in, in the Meccan Quran, that when human beings achieve a level of success, they start thinking that they're autonomous. And they start saying, well, you know, do, do we really, is it really due to God? That pettiness in human psychology, and that is why Allah is, is telling them, the, you were willing to sacrifice when you had nothing. And when Allah gave you, that was the, we, the cause for the weakness of your faith. And then the um, and uh, oh, before I forget, so I have always been this this Quranic expression has always um Yeah, it's always it it, it 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 always prosecutes you, or I don't want to, you know it's it's always after you, because how often do we speak about goals in iman, but we really don't do what would. Is what is necessary to achieve these goals in Iman. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, oh, we, we want this type of Iman, we want this type of faith, but when it, when it comes to, to, to the micro level, we consistently prefer our comfort, or we give, consistently give priority you know, well, you know, I, I'm too tired, I'm too exhausted, I'm, you know, I have this or that priority. And, and, and then you remember, that the, it's as if the, the, what, what makes you slip into hypocrisy is when you rely on what, you strive for as as proof of your goodness rather than what you actually work hard for so many people think as long as i you know have the right objectives the right goals oh you know i'm 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 fine because i'm working towards them but really are you so now the other, the famous story of Thalab al-Ansari. Um, when Allah says, وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ عَاهَدَ اللَّهِ لَإِنْ أَتَانَا مِنْ فَضْلِهِ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ This is, and some among them are such who vowed to God 
that if indeed God would grant us something out of God's bounty, we will most certainly be charitable. And we will be righteous. But when God gave them, they failed. So here is often the, the, the often reported narrative of Thalab al-Ansari. Thalab al-Ansari was a, a fairly, I mean, he was a good man. Um, um, among the early converts and someone who had a good record and Thalab al-Ansari was a, 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 an indigent. He uh, was, uh, had very little and he goes to the Prophet والسلام, and he asks the, tells the Prophet, if only, you know, I see people who are wealthy and he's critical of people who are wealthy who don't give. And he tells the Prophet, والسلام, you know, if if Allah would have if Allah would have blessed me with possessions, with wealth, I would be the most giving. I you know, if it was up to me. I would have done this and that and this. And then he goes to the Prophet and says, you know, pray to Allah to give me, because to, 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 to enrich me. And the Prophet tells him repeatedly, warns him against, it says, you know, if are you going to be able to handle the responsibility of wealth? And Thalaba assures the Prophet that, you know, he would if, if he would do so much good so finally um, the Prophet does do that Thalaba becomes rich and Thalaba becomes very rich in due time and little by little first the you know people notice that Salaba is no longer among the first to show up for prayer. And then eventually he stops showing up for the daily prayers. He prays at home. And then eventually he stopped showing up for Juma. And the Prophet also asked about Salaba. Um and the, the and the Prophet says in, in a, um, a famous statement that sort of became, became a, a, a um, comments on the folly of how the folly of what Thalab has done to himself. The, the, conviction and the faith and the belief that if only he had the wealth, he would have done everything right. And when Allah gave Thalaba, eventually Thalaba started even nickeling and diming Muslims when it came to the Sadaq. So he would question whether, you know, haven't I given off and so on and so forth. Um, and the the Prophet then tells Muslims when when they, they tell him that Thalaba is 
questioning how much he should give. As the story goes on, is that the Prophet says, okay, I will no longer accept any money from Salama. And when Salama hears that the Prophet said, don't take any money from Salama. And when Ghazwa Tabu came and Salama wanted to donate to support the army, the Prophet returned the money and said, we don't take money from you. He understood that the meaning of this is that he is in deep trouble in the hereafter and that he used to go around begging the Prophet to forgive him and to take his money. Uh, so the story of Salab is very interesting. I mean, it's it's just among those, uh, and it's so widely narrated that um, you know there are there are the details that differ. Did he lose his wealth at the end? Uh, did he donate his wealth at the end? Uh, did he did the prophet ever accept his money, or did he never did? The, there you know there. There are disagreements as to that. So you read different reports that quibble about these details. But what is remarkable is how many transmissions there are of the basic narrative about Thalaba. That he was from nothing, he asked the Prophet to pray for him, the Prophet does, he becomes very rich, and slowly, um, and then the, the Prophet is very saddened and says lo to Thalaba you know how how um, the folly of the deal that he made so okay so Notice that 77, that Allah comments on this. It says, فَعَقَبَهُمْ نِفَاقًا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ إِلَىٰ يَوْمِ يَلْقَوْنَ بِمَا أَخْلَفُوا اللَّهِ مَا وَعَدُوهُ وَبِمَا كَانُوا يَكْذِبُونَ That ultimately, when you go down this path, of having promised, because so often, and, and people a lot of times will, will, will actively uh, not remember, or actively um, fool themselves into not remembering the promises they made to God at different points in their lives. That you know, you you go through a point of hardship, and the promise you made to God, whether you articulate it as a promise or you feel it in heart in your heart as a promise, Allah just get me out of this, or Allah or just help you with this. But once relief comes, once Allah eases the hardship, the same sentiments, same feelings are no longer as pressing or as deliberate that 
the consequence of that is that Allah allows for nifaq to grow. This is like you've opened the door for nifaq and nifaq grows like a bacterial growth inside of you. And and so when, when you read 77, Allah says that whereupon God causes hypocrisy to take root in their hearts, therein to remain until the day which they meet God. The, the story of someone like Jalas is the exception, it's not the rule. The, the, the worst thing about Nifaq is the nearly limitless and endless human ability to justify being unprincipled, to justify being uncommitted or quasi-committed. So that this nafaq then takes hold in their hearts until the day they meet God. Um, and of course, 78 ألم يعلموا أن الله يعلم يعلم سرهم ونجواهم وأن الله علم الغيوب. Don't they know that in fact Allah knows what is in their hearts and knows what they what they thought to themselves and what they spoke to themselves um, and so on. Let's take a short break for, before we deal with seventy nine. Three minutes. Three minute break. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So now, 79, we get to another aspect of hypocrisy or another uh, fashion of hypocritical behavior. So, الذين يلمزون المطوعين من المؤمنين في الصدقات والذين لا يجدون إلا جهدهم فأسخرون منهم سخر الله منهم ولهم عذاب أليم. Now, this actually, this, if you look at 79, those who find fault with such of the believers as give for the sake of God, more than they are duty-bound to give, as well as with such as find nothing to give beyond the meager fruits of their toil, and who scoff at them all. Uh, so then, God will cause their scoffing to rebound on them, and grievous suffering awaits them. And it is too, it's, tempting to just skip over this and say, well, you know, this is not uh, uh, to disassociate oneself from this type of hypocritical behavior. But again, you pause and you ponder and you think about what Allah is describing here. So what is the, the, the hypocrisy that is being committed here? There, there are two aspects to it, if you will. First, or 
two types those who um, when they observe people giving generously their attitude and their what they, their comments about those who give generously is instead of admiring this behavior or instead of looking at this behavior as exemplary meaning they then comment or at least what they think about this behavior or what they say about this behavior oh well such and such person is giving so generously just so it will be said that they are generous so they provide negative um, a, a, a negative commentary on morally praiseworthy behavior part of the social values that you create is what type of social values do you encourage and what type of social values do you admire well, if you look at generous behavior and your commentary is, well, oh, people are just doing it because they're just showing off. So that's one. Or to... Lems is not just to say that they're showing off, but also, or to say, oh, they're foolish. This behavior is... They're idiots who, you know, to, to give so generously is silly or, you know, unwise or irresponsible or... So one is that when they see behavior that is morally praiseworthy and instead of, it, instead of looking at it as a, as a moral example to be followed, they degrade it. But at the same time, you have either those same people, and quite often they were the same people, but not necessarily so. When they see those who have nothing to give, except they literally have nothing financially to contribute because they're, they have, they're people of no means accept their own physical efforts, their attitude towards them, those who have nothing to give but their efforts, that their attitudes towards them is that either they again sow doubt about this conduct by saying, oh, they're, they're, they, they actually have wealth they they just don't want to give it in other words you, you're already you're impeaching the character of people that you have no grounds for to, to impeach you're speculating you're just and this is a, a behavior that a lot of human beings do fall in 
that you know they they say oh well no I'm sure they have something they they just don't want to give it or alternatively to feel superior to them well we've given and this is actually what a lot of reports uh, in terms of if you talk about riwayat that some of those individuals have given something and then they look at those who have nothing to give and they talk about them or speak to them as if they are superior because we are in a position to give and you're not. And again, look at the type of social morality that Islam came to engineer. When you take the totality of this behavior and you ask yourself to what extent the type of social ailments that the Quran is describing describe something within me. That is the point of these verses, is not to, you know, to identify, and that's why the Quran refuses to name the, the so-called, the, those, you know, people of hypocrisy, and refuses to say, here is their party. Because it is a, it's a discourse of introspection. Do you engage in this type of behavior? To the extent you do, then hypocrisy has snuck in, has seeped into your soul. Okay. So, then, Allah comes and says, which is, استغفر لهم أو لا تستغفر لهم إن تستغفر لهم سبعين مرة فلن يغفر الله لهم ذلك بأنهم كفروا بالله ورسوله والله لا يهدي القوم الفاسقين Now, again, the importance of this is, is quite profound. So saying, Allah is telling the Prophet, whether you ask Allah to forgive them, or not, even if you ask Allah to forgive them 70 times, Allah will not forgive them. Because of their kufr. And then well, Allah said, and Allah doesn't guide the fasiqeen, guide the inequities. Notice here that nifaq and kufr and fisk Nifaq, hypocrisy, kufr, disbelief, and inequity, and fisk, inequity, are used as parallels. Again, in the moral sense, not in the legal sense. Now, the other thing is, why 70 times? This is a figure of speech in Arabic at the time, if you say 70 times, it means like if you ask, it's like when we in our modern age would say, even if you ask a hundred times, meaning many times, that's the equivalent of our, in our day and age of saying, you know, even a hundred times. So that's the number 70. There is a, um, um, What's 
quite interesting is that there are all these reports that say that I, I have okay there are a certain class of reports that I have doubts about which say that the Prophet would ask Allah to forgive certain individuals and when the companions would tell the Prophet but they are hypocrites they are among the, the hypocrites that Allah said don't ask for forgiveness for the Prophet would respond, well, Allah said, even if you ask, even if you ask me to forgive them 70 times, and I'm going to ask Allah to forgive them 71 times. So, and I have doubts because of, of the, it's, at the time the Quran is revealed, 70 times is an, is an idiomatic expression. Later on, when that idiomatic expression it loses the number 70 loses its significance it seems like you know these reports that say well you know if if the prophet asks 71 times it's a different deal allah might forgive it it, it goes against the spirit of the revelation however there is something significant about these reports is that the prophet's attitude and this is something we don't pause at and we don't stop at. And it, it's, again, because we don't write the seerah from a Muslim perspective. Most of the seerah that we've written in the modern age is from an Orientalist perspective. Is that the Prophet's attitude towards the revelation about hypocrisy in Surah At-Tawbah and later on in Surah Al-Ma'idah is not one of anger and vengeance, but actually one of sorrow and 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 sympathy. He actually, the Prophet feels sorry for them. And the reason that Allah tells him that even if you ask me to forgive them, I will not, is because of the numerous reports that when they would, those of them that would come to the Prophet and even those who would say, we didn't say what you might have heard that we've said, Allah, the Prophet's response is, may Allah forgive you. Or may Allah forgive us all, which is, he would often say. And that, as we will see, when some of them who were quite famous for doing things that were just not, like withdrawing, with their, with their allies in, from battle, like Abdullah ibn Ubay, that when they die, the Prophet would insist on praying on them until Allah ordered the Prophet to stop praying on them. So the picture that emerges is of a man that is actually, his heart is broken. And this is not the way we write the seerah, but this is the way we should write the seerah. His heart is broken about those who said, we believe, but ultimately failed the test. And instead of running after them and telling them, you're hypocrites, you're hypocrites, how dare you? He actually is, he, he, as we saw repeatedly, 
that he, when they come to him with excuses, he doesn't say anything. And the most he says is that he sincerely prays that Allah guides them and forgive them. Which takes us back. He is rep a representative of the political institution, of course, of the religious institution, but as well of the political institution and a representative of law. And as the representative of law, his attitude is not one of inquisition and persecution. It is actually quite the opposite. His attitude is so forgiving that Allah comes to him and says, you know, this is Allah's business. I know that you really want me to forgive them for their behavior, but that's not the way it's going to work. Those that I don't want to forgive, no matter how much you ask me to forgive, I'm not going to forgive. Ponder that. I mean, it, it just completely turns our understanding of the personality of the Prophet and that even Allah comes and says, you know, I know you have a soft heart. And as they would say, you are an ear, you're an udran, you believe everything. It's not that he believes everything, but he's not eager to condemn what he knows is untrue and is, is, a, is a human weakness. His attitude is one of forgiveness. It's like, I know you're BSing me, but I'm not going to call you on it. I can call you on it. I can embarrass you, but I'm not going to do it. And so he lets it go. And the fact that, what is the proof that he knows it's BS is that he asks Allah to forgive them. So after they, they make the excuses and leave, his attitude, Allah, please forgive them because I know they are being unjust towards themselves. And it is Allah that comes. Now, what is fascinating is that there are the, the numerous reports is that after this revelation, the Prophet ﷺ continues to ask Allah to forgive them. The, not the reports that say 71, although I, they have the same genesis. But the reports in which the Prophet ﷺ says, That Allah told me whether to Allah told me whether you ask me to forgive them or not, I will not forgive them. But Allah didn't prohibit me, didn't forbid me from asking Allah to forgive them. So he continues to do it. Now, of course, as some have noticed and said. Well, he continues to do it in order to teach his society something about the attitude towards those who are unjust to themselves. Don't contribute to this injustice with your anger and hatred and vehemence. The, the, you know, don't don't aid the shaitan against them. Don't help shaitan against your fellow your brothers and your sisters. But I but other than that, I genuinely believe that this was when you understand the personality of the Prophet, that 
he was truly a man of a very tender heart and a heart that responded with genuine sorrow when he saw people fail themselves. And he it was not a part of his character to go after people chiding them for failing themselves, but to issue the advice that he needs to advise, issue, and then it's up to you. It's up to you whether you actually follow through or not. Okay. So, now, again, in dealing with the dynamics of Nefaq, we come to another historical incident. The, now, this incident, however, this is now in 81. Those who were left behind rejoiced in their staying away from war. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. وَكَرِهُ أَن يُجَاهِدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ So, and, um, yeah, the staying away from war. After the departure of God's apostle, for they hated the thought of striving with their possessions and their lives in God's cause. And they even said to the others, do not go forth to war in this heat. لَا تَنْفِرُوا فِي الْحَرِّ وَقَالُوا لَا تَنْفِرُوا فِي الْحَرِّ this is 82 now. So let them laugh a little, but they will cry a lot for what they've earned. Okay. فَإِنْ رَجَعَكَ اللَّهُ إِلَى طَائِفَةٍ مِّنْهُمْ فَاسْتَأْزَنُوكَ لِلْخُرُوشِ فَقُلْ لَنْ تَخْرُجُوا لَنْ تَخْرُجُوا مَعِي أَبَدًا وَلَنْ تُقَاتِلُوا مَعِي عَدُوًّا إِنَّكُمْ رَضِيتُمْ بِالْقُعُودِ أَوَّلَ مَرَّةٍ فَاقْعُدُوا مَعَ الْخَالِفِينَ So, and hence, O Prophet, if they come again face to face, if you come again face to face with some of them and they ask leave to go forth to war with you, say, never shall you go forth with me to war, nor shall you fight an enemy together with me again. Behold, you were well pleased to stay at home on the first occasion. Stay at home then with those who are obliged to remain behind. وَلَا تُصَلِّي عَلَىٰ أَحَدٍ مِّنْهُمْ مَاتَ أَبَدًا وَلَا تَقُمْ عَلَىٰ قَبْرِهِ And do not pray over any of them who had died. Never shall you stand by their graves, or by his grave. إِنَّهُمْ كَفَرُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ For they have denied God and God's Prophet وَمَاتُوا وَهُمْ فَاسِقُونَ And they've died in inequity. Um, okay. 
إنما يريد الله أن يعذبهم بها في الدنيا وتزهق أنفسهم وهم كافرون and do not be impressed by their worldly possessions their money or their children because and let not their worldly goods and happiness which they may derive from their children excite thy admiration God but wants to chastise them by these means in the life of in, in this world and to cause their souls to depart, to depart while they are still denying the truth. Okay, so here is another um, historical incident that is alluded to or if it's a sub-incident so who are the mukhallafun? These are the, the, the people who explicitly did not join the Prophet's army in Tabuk. Um, and there are, I mean, we'll get to some of the, of the, the, the many reports, but some said that there were around 80 people although you get conflicting reports about their exact number. These individuals made either outright simply refused to join the military campaign. Some made excuses that were outlandish excuses and it was I mean it was clear that they just and we know that they are a, a again Surah Tawbah is talking another about another manifestation of hypocrisy because they were advocates against this campaign and they were telling their friends that it's it is contrary to the habits of Arabs to travel at this time of the year in this heat so far away from what is Arabs would often fight their military campaigns close to where they lived in other words familiar territory and part of this is because most of their warfare were raiding against other tribes these ongoing feuds with of tribe against tribe and what emerged from this habit is that you are fighting who is familiar to you and on familiar territory But this um, ethic, if you will, or this, this social, this, this uh, um, uh, creed or this habit, ultimately what it results in is weakness. It, the, 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 those who are strong, who are powerful, ready themselves to meet the challenge wherever it presents itself. But if you say, well, you know, I only will meet the challenge 
as long as it is familiar to me and as long as it these conditions of comfort are met well what it, it translates to is what happened in actual history that these arab tribes re- remained subservient and weak to the byzantians who would strike far far away from their own imperial lands and so when the prophet said we are going to go to tabuk to meet the byzantians you had this click who are saying this is this is ridiculous since when do arabs travel you know it's one thing to travel well-known routes in trade where we have we know where we're gonna stop we know where we what you know what path we're taking we know exactly the time of the the year that we are traveling but to go on a military campaign on territory that we don't know not familiar to us in this heat and so the expression let and you can't go on this campaign in the heat that's the background to it now nevertheless look how easily what is familiar and what is cultural can be the pathway to hypocrisy and that's part of the significance of this is that they're invoking what could if you don't understand what this cause is about and what belief and trust in Allah and what preparedness is about, it could make a lot of sense to you. Yeah, you know, we we don't do this. We don't go in, out in the heat and travel in the desert. And in fact, they did run out of water. I mean, that's the... the, the... But those folks presented a a subgroup that is critical and that encouraged one another not to go on that campaign in the first place and remain behind. What is again these these like pauses that 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 makes you reflect very deeply about the Quran. The Quran comes, now these are folks that tended to have money. And so there, if, if we know that in Tabuk, the Muslim army had a very hard time finding enough horses and enough camels. Well, these are the folks that are more likely to have a horse and to have a camel leave alone other livestock. And yet Allah comes and pause and think about this. Allah comes and tells the Prophet, tell them, while we are not going to imprison you, we are not going to banish you, we are not going to exile you, we are not going to kill you, but as a matter of principle, we will not accept aid from you again. You are not to join us in battle again, and we don't want your money. 
clearly, if, if, you, if you take this as a very mechanical lesson, then I think you've lost the point. The point is to communicate social ostracism, a clear moral position. This is not about, oh, you can help us and we will thank you whenever you feel like helping us. Because that's often how we deal with the wealthy. Oh, you know, whenever your majesty can, you know, help, we are always be ready to receive your assistance and we will be very grateful to you. This is a very different attitude. And think, have you ever seen in a historical text, ever, a response to the wealthy by telling the wealthy, okay, thank you, but we don't want your help. Never. You won't find it. This is singularly Quranic in, in, in the historical time we are talking about. And that is why it was so shocking. If you are weak of faith, you're going to say, what the heck is Muhammad doing? We need all the help we can get. And you're telling these people who bailed out, okay, fine, enjoy your wealth, go. I mean, the natural thing is to say, well, at least can't we throw them in prison? At least what, can't we try them and convict them and sentence them to 20 years in prison or something for treason? Or, you know, can't we exile them? Why can't we just watch them enjoying themselves, living with their... And this is why Allah tells them, tells Muslims and tells the Prophet, don't admire their wealth. Because the natural inclination is to say, oh, great, so we make all the sacrifices and you gave them a license to just live their life and enjoy themselves. That's not fair. Do you, do you see how the, the how Allah challenges your belief and your conviction? Well, it comes and says, no, but that's precisely the point. If you truly believe that there is a hereafter and that wealth on this earth means very little, you will look at what they're enjoying and the license they receive to, to, to be selfish and to live hedonistically, you will actually feel sorry for them. You won't be filled with rage and envy. You will be. You will actually feel sorry for them. And you will say, yeah, you know, good luck. But we, 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 can, we rely on Allah, we don't rely on you. Remarkable. Um, and then the further, which is, and this goes back to, to what I was saying earlier, is that the, 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 every time one of these hypocrites, when Abdullah ibn Ubay, who's often described as the, 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 uh, the, the head of the hypocrites, you know, the pinnacle in hypocrisy, when he died, his own son, who was actually a good Muslim, didn't want to pray on his father because he, he, he understood that his father was always a hypocrite. But 
every time a hypocrite would die and the family would go to the Prophet and say, can you pray on him? And with Abdullah, that's exactly what happened, is that when he died, his family, not his son, but other members of the family, went to the Prophet and said, can you please pray on him? Meaning on his janazah prayer. And the, the Prophet would accept and would go. And But with but there is a risk in doing that. And the risk is in diluting moral values. Is that what people would think, well, you know, just because they were not exiled or thrown into prison and so on, that this behavior it might be acceptable. So the, the prohibition came to the prophet individually. You don't pray on a hypocrite. Other Muslims can, if they wish. But you, as the head of the state, you can't do it. And what, again, what's, what strikes me as quite remarkable is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't meet this command with happiness and relish or vindictiveness, say, yeah, I was just waiting for God to tell me that... You even get reports, which I don't accept, that he still did it, which I don't believe, because if Allah told him to stop doing it, then, you know. Some commentators said, well, yeah, he did it, but it wasn't the 80 that didn't join Tabuk, it was other hypocrites. That's possible, I mean, because you can read the, the Quranic revelation as just applying to the 80 that didn't join the Battle of Tabuk. But but I, I think it was broader than that. I think like that the, that we, we have a whole class of, uh, especially in the incident that we'll talk about later, was the, the, that, will, that, that involved clear acts of treason. And where we, we see the prophet clearly not preying on the people involved in the clear acts of treason that we'll talk about. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I just uh, several commentators noted that Allah, Allah's emphasis to the Prophet, you are not to pray on them. It it was further evidence of the the ongoing practice that every time the prophet would be asked, he would oblige. Okay. So, they are, you know, they, they are not going to be permitted to join, what time is it, by the way, just so I can, what, uh, no, I can't see it. Okay, so we're going to stop soon. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, we can... Look, this theme carries on till... وَإِذَا أُنْزِلَتْ سُورَةً أَنْ آمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَجَاهِدُوا فِي مَعَ رَسُولِهِ 
This is 86. And if every time a revelation comes that reminds them of jihad and the obligation of the head, jihad. Um, so, and strive under God, God, even such of them as were well able to go to war, only to minimum those who are capable. They ask you for an exemption. They come and make excuses and say, allow us to stay behind with those who remain at home. So it's, it's, it deals again, notice that it is talking to you. If you've done that, you know you've done that. Again, at the moral level, so, Radu بأن يكونوا مع الخوالف وطبع على قلوبهم فهم لا يفقهون it, it is they've accepted to be cowardly they've accepted the state of nifaq for themselves and that is precisely why they have been infected by the disease of nifaq it's like, it, it's as if once nifaq settles in your heart and you open the door to it, it, it overcomes your ability to rationalize, to think through um, out of the nifaq. Um, okay. Uh, um, yeah. The uh, when 87 and 80 or 86 and 87 on the one hand it, it they could be referring to the same group the, the 80 or so people that um, that didn't join or that re made excuses not to join the military campaign in Tabuk um, there are a number of narrations that say that particularly 86 and 87 refers to or it was intended to address a, a different group of people. Same results, same type of behavior, but not the 80 that actually lived in Medina and Mecca um, that it made excuses not to join, but rather it, it, people from the clan of Amir ibn Tufail, it's a clan, and it's a clan led, the chief of the clan is Amir ibn Tufail. And Amir ibn Tufail is he lives close to the to Mecca and or the clan lives close to Mecca and it was among the clans that had entered Islam uh, in the seventh Hijri year or so and now came a test that either you you are you are truly with the Islamic program, if you will, or you see yourself on the margins of that Islamic program. So you make excuse. So, uh, 
Amr ibn Tufayl goes to the Prophet and tells the Prophet, we would love to go out in Tabuk, we would love to contribute our share of forces to the Tabuk campaign. However, we really can't because if we do, that will leave our people vulnerable or will leave our clan vulnerable to raids by um, vagabonds and the enemies of our clan. So in other words, we can't afford to send some men to the military campaign because that will leave our women and children vulnerable. The narratives go that the Prophet ﷺ knew that this was an excuse and knew that clans that really were serious about their commitment, they made arrangements including moving the entire women and children population closer to safer areas in Mecca or Medina to make sure that they are secure or safe in the absence of most of the men. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't say anything. And as usual, said, may Allah forgive us all. And the clan of Amr ibn Tufail then was happy that they, and they didn't send anyone. And that there are many narrations that say 86 and 87 was intended to explicitly refer to these folks that they were apprehensive and anxious about any talk in the Quran about jihad. And they wanted to enter Islam and be Muslims and accept Islam except for the jihad part. So, they, and that they would, and the Allah knew, and the Allah told the Prophet that this is in fact what this, the, the, the group of Amr ibn Tufail is saying, well, you know, Islam is good, we're fine with it, but this jihad part we can do without. And that Allah's revelation in 86 and 87 is addressing this issue in particular. You can't have your Islam and pick and choose and say, well, we're committed, but not if it involves a real sacrifice in Allah's path. Okay, let's stop here. Um, a lot more to come in Surah At-Tawbah. Um, inshallah. But, you know, it's... Okay, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. Let's... Uh, Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, again, thank you for an incredible day six of Surah Tawbah. Um, I just, I'll share some of my chicken scratches of um, things that really jumped out for me um, from, from today, um, that this clearly is a surah about introspection and the challenges that come with victory and comfort and luxury. Um, it's a challenge for those who have the most to lose, not those who have the least to lose. 
and that um, the prophet, uh, peace be upon him, would always, when people would come up to him and ask him, would say, you know, look within, judge yourself, don't don't ask me, um, and that it's clear that Allah is speaking to our conscience when Allah is speaking about different forms of hypocrisy, and it's not about law, but it's about what um, what you in, inside know. Um, and then has provided all of these examples of hypocrisy and people's attitudes that we recognize here are you know today, um, which I think was, was so striking when you go through these examples and it's like, okay, we know people who are very negative when you try to do something good or not supportive or just like, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should, you know, think about whether you're giving, are you giving too much or whatever. I mean, we've all, we all know people like that. Um, and instead of having the attitude of unrestrained um, goodness and giving, um, just all the people who, um, you know, challenge do that. Um, then the warning against the theology of selfishness. I love that term, that the th theology of selfishness is really what is the theology of hypocrisy. Um, people looking out for themselves rather than thinking about, um, you know, others. Um, and having the attitude that we must always maximize good and goodness. You know, we can't just be worried about the people that we know and care about and not be worried about the people in other parts of the world that are suffering. Um, and that activism obviously is important, but before that comes comprehension and before that comes education. Um, you have to, you know, you can't be ignorant um, in and jumping out in activism because a lot of that can lead to evil and that a lot of people who are evil invest a lot in disinformation which we see you know in our day clearly um, that we must be uncompromising and not dilute our principles when we are surrounded by um, people who are you know um, of, of the hypocrites I mean we live in an age where we are surrounded by people all of the time that don't believe as we do so that's a very clear lesson for us today um, and then I thought it was so powerful, verse 74, um, when you were talking about how the verse said, you know, these people tried to do something, but they didn't achieve it. And I saw even in my translation, which is um, the Abdul Halim translation, that this is referring, you know, to the attempt against the prophet's life. Um, and that's what you were saying most people believe in. And so this is, it's always so striking, like, you know, when you read in a translation and there's a footnote and it says, this is very clearly referring to the attempt on the prophet's life, but there's no mention that there could be other interpretations. And it's so powerful when you say, no, this actually refers to people trying to be believers and then be being tested when God gives them something and then they you know, they, they failed the test that, you know, when they had nothing to lose, they were committed. But then as soon as they got tested with wealth, um, they failed, they gave priority to material gains and comfort. Um, and that, you know, is so valuable for everyone. Um, and then underscores the lesson we learned earlier about how once human beings start to get more or get more um, success, they start feeling that they are autonomous from God, not recognizing that actually everything comes from Allah. Um, and then um, the goals and intentions that you might hold versus your actions. Um, and, you know, that we have to, um, you know, really investigate, you know, are we just telling ourselves we're okay um, because our goals and intentions are good as opposed to what we actually do? Um, do we prefer our own comforts? Um, how can we, this is a one way we can very easily slip into hypocrisy. Um, and then when you promise Allah something and then you forget it, um, that that is again a way to slip into hypocrisy. 
Um, and that it's important to recognize that Allah re re um, refuses to name the hypocrites or people because it's not about naming people, but it's about elucidating the behavior for us to be introspective about that can cause us to slip into hypocrisy. Um, and then addresses so many of the social ail ailments that are within us. And I think it was just so powerful the time you spent really talking about the prophets, um, peace be upon him, about his personality and how he was not vindictive. Um, it was not about witch hunts or calling people out, but that he really was forgiving and tenderhearted and very sorrowful about people who um, really failed themselves and wanted to pray for their forgiveness. And just that that whole, you know, emphasizing that side of his personality that um, you often don't hear about and making it really come alive. Um, and then the very important um, message, like what is familiar and cultural is often the pathway to hypocrisy. When you were talking about the example about, you know, oh, it's ridiculous, why would Arabs travel far away? Why would they, you know, not do this out of their comfort zone, but that, you know, instead of standing up and doing what is actually needed and necessary, um, and that's such an important lesson because, especially with the Muslim communities today, people really fall on what's familiar and cultural as opposed to actually what is required for justice. Um, and then dealing with, with the wealthy on principle and the whole idea of social ostracism on a moral position um, that, no, we don't want your money, you can't join us. And, you know, because when we think about how we treat the wealthy today, it's like, oh, you're going to, you know, throw us a little money? Sure, we'll give you whatever you want. And such a distinction between when we are all driven by, by money and having the support of the wealthy as opposed to being driven by principle, which is really, really important. Um, and then the point that you cannot dilute principles even by praying over hypocrites, which is another, you know, again, in that mindset. Um, and then the most, I guess, scary and terrifying and, you know, something to reflect on is that when you open your heart to hypocrisy, how if you're not careful, it can actually just settle in your heart and it becomes a lot easier to justify and a lot more difficult to get yourself out of. So it's really important for us to um, be aware of that. So hope that was helpful and uh, thank you so much for joining us this is incredible um look forward to seeing you again on saturday next week inshallah i hope everyone has a wonderful week and um yeah and keep the request coming if you have friends or people who want the uh, prophet's pulpit it's really exciting to see um how many people from all parts of the world um are really excited about it, embracing it, sharing it with their friends. And so I think this is how we can actually make a difference. So have a wonderful week, everybody. Inshallah, we'll see you soon. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>